0: is a horrible histories, terrible mysteries podcast. The past, and sometimes the present, are often a bleak place. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of Disturbing Interests, please like and
1: subscribe. And for the love of God, tell a friend about us. Pretend you're a Mormon. Go door to door with the good news of Disturbing Interests. Preach our gospel, brothers and sisters, and non-gender binaried siblings, to the world at large. Because remember, with us, you might be disturbed.
0: But you're not alone. Welcome back to Disturbing Interest, everyone. I am Regina King, your evil queen, and sitting in her own house is my ever beautiful partner.
1: Good evening. I am Lynn, your docent of distancing. Ah, 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 ah.
0: I just want you to count like that. One, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh.
1: One terrible episode. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Yeah, that's, that's a little foreshadowing about the episode. See, foreshadowing.
0: Yes, yes, it is. Anyway, on that note, before we dive in to this uh, ghoulish, blood-soaked episode.
1: Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh.
0: I'd like to give a couple of shout outs first to Dara Day over in Oklahoma. Thank you so much for all of the love that you sent to us. It really means a lot. We appreciate you being here for us because we are here for you. And then also to the blogger Megan Sarah. Thank you so much for giving us a shout out. We see you and we're happy you hear us. So thanks so much for that. You guys are awesome
1: we may be apart but we're not alone
0: we may be disturbed but we're disturbed together
1: <laughs> yes something <laughs> like that
0: sure sure
1: so how how you doing how's this week going oh, yeah Woo, hellscape what a debate yeah
0: this is the fuckiest timeline
1: Oh, the fuckiest. It really, really is.
0: Am I the only one who is beginning to look out the window every morning and say, hmm, what does the apocalypse have ready for me today?
1: Well, I do that right after I check the smoke forecast. Who knew growing up that I would be looking at a smoke forecast? I mean, that's a thing now. The smoke forecast. Wow.
0: Fire tornadoes are a thing now. Yeah hurricanes in the middle of iowa are a thing now why is nobody talking about all of this bizarre bullshit that is going on that we're not talking about
1: because there's so much other bullshit that you just back burner it right jesus man fuck yes what a timeline well wilhelm got me today's delicious beverage that will be going with our story and it it's terrifying and I don't want to drink it, but I'm gonna, for you guys, it's bandit, isn't like little bandit, bandit wine seltzer. Ooh. That's right. It's the unholy communion of wine in a can and hard seltzer. So scary. And it's 1% for the planet, it says. Wait,
0: what's the other 99% for?
1: <laughs> Mars? I don't know. I don't know. Yes. The underworld? So. It has like a lovely, uh, it's Rainier cherry flavored wine Mm. seltzer. A lovely image of Mount Rainier, I assume on the front. And you'll be pleased to know that the label tells me that it's got no sugar added. It's 90 calories and it's vegan. Because, you know, usually there's meat in your wine.
0: I mean, are they just like slipping cows or pigs in, like go wade in that vat over there.
1: This is me being a snotty enophile. I actually know what they're talking about. So when you do stuff to kind of clarify wine, you can use a thing called icing glass, which is actually made out of, I believe, fish gelatin. Uh, So some wine might not be vegan, but I I don't care. I don't care. I'm a bad person, but there you go. But yes, icing glass. But it is vegan, so you'll be happy to know that there are no fish gelatin or cow parts or anything delicious in this one.
0: Made with real vegans.
1: So I'm going to open this bad boy up. I chose it, too, because it was red on the cover. <laughs> so it will go with today's episode. So here we go.
0: Ooh.
1: Oh, that's a good snap. Oh, God. It. Oh, my God. It smells like Robitussin. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> This smells like throwing up when I had the flu as a kid. This is going to be great. I'm so into it. Oh, that. Oh that's... Oh, no. No. <laughs> I don't... No, no, no. No, this is sad. This tastes like sadness. <laughs> it's not even very fizzy. Like, I expected it would be fizzy. It tastes like if you took, like, a glass of shitty, like, wine, like cheap Chardonnay, say, poured some Dimetap or Robitussin in it, and then diluted it by half with like flat, warm tap water. This is
0: Oh my god, that sounds so bad.
1: Two thumbs down Oh no, I'm gonna uh you know what? No, no, it didn't get better on the second sip. Hang on a second. I'm gonna see if I can get Will to bring me some real wine.
0: Hey Will!
1: for that uh, technical difficulty of disgusting wine, we have both been brought delicious glasses of wine. I'm enjoying a very dark, blood-red Cabernet <laughs> from local, uh, a local Vinter. Vintner. Is that a Vintner? Wine maker. Guy that makes wine. Elevation. The guy colors. who
0: steps on the grapes.
1: Yes, he does. Uh, in a scientific We call way. him
0: the Purple Toe.
1: Yes. So it's lovely. It's it tastes like actual wine. It does not taste like the sad phantom ghost of wine, which is what was in that can.
0: That was the sad phantom ghost of Robitussin Past. That
1: was literally that was the worst wine I have ever put myself through for our listeners. So we've hit new highs this week. Woohoo!
0: Can we say highs? Uh,
1: yeah, we? We, we've hit something.
0: We hit something. Oh,
1: God. Well, okay. Let me tell you about. About our story.
0: Oh, don't you want to know what I'm drinking oh, yeah, since I never you, drink? Yeah,
1: you don't really drink. What are you having?
0: I am having a nice glass of Riesling because we are in the fuckiest timeline. and Riesling. And Riesling. Yes, yes. It's not too sweet. It's uh, dry Riesling. I'm very pleased.
1: Excellent. Well, we're, we're at least having tasteful wine.
0: Unlike everything else to do with us. Right?
1: Well, and, and hey, this goes with our story this week. I'm going to tell you all about a classic of literature. Yes, literature. Ding dong. Who's there? Hi. Do you have time to talk about our Dark Master Dracula? Excellent. (gasps) Shall we begin? Oh, We shall. Excellent. So there is a lot of Dracula-related things out there, like a ton of Dracula that we could dive into, and we're gonna. But I thought we would start at the beginning by talking about the actual... 1897 gothic horror novel by Bram Stoker and then the various myths and stories that Stoker based the character on and then we'll move into the ways the novel transformed like Dracula can into a mist or a bat or a wolf and became such a lasting pop culture figure of fear.
0: Icon. He's an a icon. fucking icon.
1: Icon of fear. So it is time to play You Don't Know Drac. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I gotta love a pun. So, let us start with a brief history of Dracula's papa. Irish author Bram Stoker.
0: I thought you were actually going into Vlad the imp- Impaler's father
1: for a second. That's Vlad 2. Vlad 3 is theoretically Dracula, but and we will talk about Vlad 2 as we go on, but the myth that is Dracula, not the actual guy whose name was Dracula, sort of, but the fictional dracula's papa who was not in fact romanian but he was an irish guy named dracula bram. yes he was bram stoker irish guy he was irish, guy. Irish, irish guy
0: that's guy. it he guy was was bram stoker irish, irish. guy when you know he's he just one of the irish guys. guys
1: he's the guy so he was he was born in dublin as a lot of irish guys are in
0: 1847
1: he was the- just an irish guy <laughs> <laughs> just an irish guy of course i've had it in my ear before sorry i had to do it uh, anyway <laughs> got a lust for drag. anyway i'm stopping i'm stopping now so anyway bram stoker born in dublin 1847 third of seven children uh he was born to abraham and charlotte stoker uh and mm. abraham stoker was a senior civil servant and And his son would actually initially follow in his dad's footsteps after graduation from Trinity College. So Bram Stoker also wrote short fiction. And in the service to his profession, he wrote the thrilling nonfiction book with the scintillating title of The Duties of Clerk of Petty Sessions in Ireland.
0: Did you just say The Douchies or The Duties?
1: Duties. The Duties of Clerk of Petty Sessions in ireland i have no idea what that means i don't know what neither do
0: i but i am telling you whatever it is if it interfaces with the public and it's a civil servant position douches is probably a better word
1: (laughs) yeah he was not like oh my god this is my career i am so pumped to be a petty session clerk it is i'm doing my duty woo like it was not no. Hey, if
0: anyone knows what a petty session clerk is, does, or what the fuck ever anything around petty session clerkery or douchery?
1: In Ireland, in Ireland. In
0: Ireland specifically, send us an email because I am desperate to know and apparently don't want to Google anything. So there go ahead go. and send it to us at disturbinginterest@gmail.com at gmail.com Or you can hit us up on Instagram. Uh, DM us on Twitter because I finally got Twitter back up and working. Woohoo! Woo!
1: You're like the president now.
0: Yeah, except I don't tweet. <laughs> I'm. Re- I, I will receive DMs and respond, but I'm sorry, our faithful listeners. I even realized yesterday it was what the fuck Wednesday, and I just I did not get a tweet out. You had,
1: didn't have it in you.
0: I didn't have it in me. Okay. Um,
1: well. I feel like it's what the fuck every day lately, so, yep. you know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yep. Anyway, please continue.
1: So, you know, he, he, he did write some things before this, before Dracula, and he also worked as a theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail, which would lead him on to his next career before he became a novelist. Hmm. Yeah, during his reviewer days, he had impressed the famous actor and Lyceum theater founder, Henry Irving, who invited Stoker to move to London to help him manage the theater's business affairs. So, after he married his wife Florence Balcom in 1878, Stoker did just that and decamped the couple to Swing in London, baby, yeah, where they joined high society thanks to his position as manager at one of the most popular theaters in
0: the city. Well, it's good to have friends in high places. We have said this before. And I know we're going to stand behind it in the future as well. We need to uh, be ladies of leisure is what I'm saying.
1: Well, he worked his ass off for this guy. He really did. Like, he wanted... I worked
0: my ass off for my guys, too. And no <laughs> one's moving me to the London.
1: No, no not moving me. now, Yeah. Well, so he moved to London and he's managing the city. And his wife Florence actually was very well known for her beauty and grace. And her previous suitor that she threw over in favor of Bram Stoker was none other than Oscar Wilde himself. And yeah, what? Yeah, Oscar. She was. Oh, like that's some Oscar, hot, baby.
0: juicy gossip from quite a while ago that I probably should have already known. I love it
1: yeah well and oscar wilde initially kind of shunned stoker because you know he's a little bit salty after florence is like bye boy you know as you might be but eventually they did in fact rekindle their friendship and stoker even visited oscar wilde on the continent after wilde's trouble with the law sent him packing thanks to his homosexuality
0: oh yeah i don't think that marriage would have worked out anyway
1: Okay, this is some hot goss here. There's some speculation that Stoker himself was a closeted gay or bisexual man, particularly since there's a lot, if you've read the book, mm. a lot of kind of homoeroticism happening in Dracula. Very true. But that's, it, it's all speculation from the modern lens. And Stoker certainly never encouraged that view in his life, despite the fact that he absolutely adored super gay American poet icon Walt Whitman even going, and he even went so far as to endorse a letter that suggested that all homosexual writers in Britain should be imprisoned like Oscar Wilde had been, which sucks. But, you know, it's a shitty thing that he did and a rather stab in the back, but it might also be kind of a cover your own ass move Mm -hmm. on his part. And also, kind of, if he had secret, conflicted feelings about the men's, he might be doing that too. So.
0: You know, if people were just accepting about sexuality, as long as it's between consenting adults and no one's getting hurt, I'm going to say that every freaking time, consenting, no one's hurt, adult. If people were more accepting about that, can you imagine the world we would live in? It would be amazing. Bram Stoker, Oscar Wilde, his wife, they all would have been in a loving relationship together and we would probably have five more books that we were ex- so excited over
1: i mean quite possibly but yeah it was um it was not an awesome open-minded time in that way
0: is it now has it ever been
1: you know i think we're getting better i do think we're getting better you know well yeah
0: i mean we're not locking people up in this country for being gay but i had to specify this country i'm just real tired and and full of rage
1: Been reading the news again.
0: I have. I need to put myself on another news blackout.
1: Just just nothing but like the bunny channel. Just bunnies.
0: Oh, I need to send you the video of Rocky running up the stairs in slow motion to put up on our social media because he is the most majestic floof of a dog you've ever seen. Buddy. Mm -hmm. anyway please continue i digress
1: that is that is fine uh in fact weirdly enough that was written at the top of the next paragraph
0: ah nice
1: psychic so starting at about 1893 stoker started making regular visits to cruden bay in scotland to take these month-long writing holidays and it was here that he started writing dracula in fact nearby slain's castle quite probably inspired much of the physical descriptions of Castle Dracula, including its octagonal hall, which is a dead ringer for the real room at Slane's. He also visited the English coastal town of Whitby in 1890, which many feel was also inspirational for the novel, as Dracula's ship runs aground there, and he meets Mina and Lucy, who are holidaying there at Whitby, and who soon become two of his victims. So here's an interesting sidebar. Thanks in part to the popularity of the novel Dracula, Whitby has also contemporarily become the site of Whitby Goth Weekend, a twice yearly dark music festival that has been held there since 1994. So one day, once we're all shot up with the Fauci juice, and we're not going to die of the Rona and aren't going to be run afoul by orange Nazis so that other countries don't consider us a pariah plague state, and let us actually come into their borders again. I have got this on my bucket
0: list. Nice. We could do this together. Disturbing travels, you know, Travel Channel. Hit us up. We right? got this. Got to do this. We are the people that you want to stand behind and send into haunted, crazy ass places because she's going to stand there at four foot nothing and be like,
1: "Was someone murdered here? We'll sleep there. Do the walls bleed? We'll sleep there. Oh yeah."
0: It writes itself.
1: I would totally. Why not? So Stoker did quite a bit of research to write Dracula, although he never actually set foot in any of the locales in Eastern Europe where the first part of the novel is set. It appears he spent about seven years, on and off, reading, writing, researching folk tales from that part of the world, though, and being particularly influenced by Emily Gerard's 1885 essay, Transylvania Superstitions which included the whole vampire myth. He also appears to have used a number of other books about Transylvania and its legends due to his margin markings that have been found in books of that period that he had access to as a member of the London Library. So he was big into, like, scrawling in the margins, which is kind of a no-no, but, you know, if you're a cool historical writer dude, kind of cool. So he also had clippings from U.S. newspapers about the exhumation of Mercy Brown in Rhode Island from 1892, but, mm. but scholars are not sure if it influenced much about this actual book. So Mercy Brown, for those that are like, eh, name sounds sort of familiar, she was an unfortunate woman whose entire family, herself included, slowly succumbed to consumption, or as we call it today, tuberculosis. So friends and family swore that it wasn't TB, but rather a vampire who was slowly preying on the Brown family, and eventually the bodies of the deceased family members were dug up to put minds at rest. One body among them, the teen daughter Mercy, was found with almost no decomposition and blood still in her heart, so the local yokels decided she defo was a vamp.
0: Of course. That's, that is the sign of the vamp. I personally have always thought that Mercy was kind of where he got his idea of, God, what's her name? I'm blanking on it right now. Lucy.
1: Lucy Westenra? Yeah, some people, some people think that other scholars say no, but they are very similar. And You know, if she's not a vampire, what was it? Well, it was the fact that she died in the middle of winter, dumbass. And basically it acted like a freezer for her. So, you know, how you put, I don't know, chicken in the fridge and it doesn't go bad for a while? Same thing if you bury a body in frozen ground.
0: No! Science!
1: Right? So, with poor Mercy, they basically dug her up and then they burned her heart and her liver mixed those ashes with water to make a tonic for her surviving but ill brother Edwin to drink. And alas, because the remedy was a uh, total bullshit and it was TB and not the undead that was slowly killing him, Edwin succumbed to the disease about two months later. But this was still some really sweet, sweet fodder for a number of fictional tales that would follow on, including, as you said, possibly the inspiration for the character, of Lucy Westenra.
0: It makes sense. I always thought like from the moment I heard that story I thought oh I wonder if this was what Lucy was based off of.
1: So it's it's entirely possible but another kind of more earthy and slightly adorable explanation for his inspiration for this book was actually given by Stoker himself who claimed that overindulging in a dinner of crab meat caused a nightmare about a vampire king rising from the grave so now in this household all flatulence and burping (laughs) shall henceforth be known as releasing the vampire king
0: oh my god that is phenomenal phenomenal
1: sometimes history is adorable
0: Sometimes you just got to release the Vampire King.
1: Release the va- The crab-scented Vampire King. Mm-mm. <laughs> so, So Dr- Dracula was hardly the first vampire novel to set hearts fluttering and hands trembling in the 19th century, though. So way back in 1797, broody, melodramatic German author Johann Wolfgang von Goethe published his story, The Bride of Corinth, about a lady vampire who is forced to rise from her grave to drink the blood of her lost love. And then there was also John Polidori's 1819 novel, The Vampire, that was based on his dead buddy Lord Byron's unfinished vampire novel as well. And then in 1871 Sheridan Le Fanu wrote Carmilla about a foxy lesbian vampire which might well have inspired Dracula more than just a little. And then of course there was also the very popular penny dreadful from the mid 1800s of the most terrifyingly named creature of the night of all, Varney the Vampire.
0: Oh my god, Varney
1: varney i'm here to suck your blood oh <laughs> yeah
0: i am here for that child show
1: varney the Vampire. actually i'm here for that
0: horror movie yep. let's make varney a clown and Uh-oh. hit two phobias with one these giant fangs come out like they un- unhinge like a viper and they go to bite you and when they do you hear a squeaker
1: <laughs> yep varney the vampire I don't make this stuff up, guys. I just report it. So yeah, uh, there was a lot of inspiration out there, and thank God Stoker at least went with a cooler name than Varney in the form of Dracula. And where did that name, Dracula, come from? Well, Bram Stoker pretty much directly swiped it from an erstwhile medieval tyrant from Wallachia, Vlad Tepes, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Dracula.
0: Vlad Dracula.
1: And, as you might guess from his sobriquet, he was not a cuddly dude. He was a sharp, pointy object kind of dude. Which actually seems both appropriate and a little weird for a vampire. So, the Dracula incarnation of his name was inherited from his father, Vlad the II, a.k.a. Vlad the Dragon, if you're speaking medieval Romanian. And Vlad's dad got his got his name after becoming a member of the Order of the Dragon. And Vlad Tepesh's name is the Slavonic genitive form of Dracul, wherein the addition of the A at the end indicates that he is son of the dragon. You son of a dragon!
0: Does that technically make him Fire Nation?
1: Uh, could be. I don't know. I, I haven't... I... <laughs> I don't know how that tracks, but yes.
0: So I mean, he could... Uh, the, the Son of the Dragon, Zuko, Fire Nation. Yeah, we're just going with it. Sure. He is Fire Nation. I mean,
1: you know, there's a lot of Dracula um, adaptations. So if we can have Abbott and Costello meet Dracula, why not The Last Bender? You know, why not? Ah! The Last Bloodbender. Yes! Oh, now that actually sounds pretty rad. Well,
0: that would make him Water Tribe then, because there was a bloodbender.
1: You have thought a lot about this. You have thought a lot, yeah.
0: Apparently, I I think a lot about Avatar and Dracula. I've never combined them, but this is working with me. I'm good here.
1: Look, pastiche is where the money is. Go for it. So, now in modern Romanian, Dracul no longer means dragon. It means the devil which definitely boosted Vlad's rep as a naughty, stabby boy. And as to his other nickname, Vlad Pepesh, meaning the Impaler, that came about because his favorite method of executing those who had wronged him was to impale them on big old pointy sticks, which is kind of weird for a vampire, I guess, who basically can only be killed by a big old pointy stick, but sure, okay, you know, maybe it's like a little hair of the dog thing
0: yeah confronting your fears you're really working through that psychological stigma of sticks either that or maybe it was the easiest way to juice a human in that time period
1: blood popsicles there you go blood human
0: popsicles yes why not yes and then you just bend that blood out of them in rivlets i'm i'm here for this show
1: so essentially, the only thing that Stoker actually took from Vlad the Draculator to Pesh was his cool name, Dracula, and the vague location of his seat of power and his origin. The rest of, of his of Vlad Pesh's pretty gruesome real life history was not a part of the book at all. But over time, popular culture has melded some of the actual Dracula story with that of the fictional Dracula especially since it provides horror movies and horror writers with added excuses for gory violence. Because, you know,
0: I have to interject something here. We're talking about the area, the location, all of that. I do have a friend who would strike me down if I was remiss to tell you that originally Dracula, Vlad himself was Hungarian.
1: Well, okay. Okay sort of but no yes that whole area kept like it's the screen door of europe right you know yes. it kept getting changed into hands and things like that and your friend would actually have to dig up the corpse of christopher lee and fight him over some of these things so that yes which we'll get to later on so real life dracula or as we will call him here because i am a jackass the rld was born into a noble life that included all damn kinds of constant warring and turf beefs and seizures of crowns and land and essentially just constant killing all kinds of people to maintain the throne. This is some Westeros-type shit for real. And this was pretty normal for the 15th century, but Vladdy definitely kicked up the old ultraviolence a notch or two and really went for the bloody execution gusto. So hundreds, if not thousands of people that Vlad felt had wronged him or his family were executed at his command upon him taking up the throne as voivode. I don't even know how you voivode is how I always told it when I would listen to the goth band, but the voivode of Wallachia in 1456. And that is so much cooler than like prince or duke or whatever. Voivode. Voivode. Like, whoa, that's freaky. Yeah, that's some scary, scary shit right there. Can you
0: imagine the the outfit that goes with that title, Voivode?
1: Oh, like, and look up, by all means, Google, like, Vlad Depeche, Vlad Dracul, and, like, check out his rad mustache, mm-hmm. his hats. Like, he was a styling tyrant, is what he I'm was. I'm telling
0: you, you have a title called uh, Voivode. You have to live up to it. You, that fashion.
1: You're not jam.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So he would then take the stuff of all the people that he had done in and distribute their worldly goods and their lands and possessions amongst his supporters to curry favor. So, I mean, he was a pretty smart and efficient guy when it came to kind of conquering things and taking stuff back, right? Land
0: back. Kind of like a bloody Robin Hood. Uh,
1: but mostly for his own... Well, and we'll get to because he's... He's kind of controversial in that not a lovely dude, but also very like pro the homeland. So he kind of he's heroic in that he's working toward independence, but kind of awful in that he's just fucking killing everybody to get there. Right. And he also went ham on the Saxon merchants who just kind of came to his land to trade with stories of him impaling them and then going after the supporters of his rival, the delightfully named Dan the Third. Hey dudes, it's King Dan. What's up, right? The third. Dan, III. Trace. Dan Trace. Yeah. Um, and he also apparently hacked the shit out of the Ottomans as well. Not like the you know, footstool, but like the Ottoman Empire people, killing the holy living shit out of their people and invading their territories along the Danube with basically the desire to, again make Christianity a thing and preserve that in the region and to preserve his actual nation state. So, you know, a lot of killing for political reasons, but he also just seemed to kind of enjoy it. Right. Mm. I mean, he, he was pretty ruthless and pretty bloodthirsty, although a point of caution in these tales to note is that again, though he definitely developed a reputation for just, cruelty and taken everybody down in his lifetime the bloody deeds that were attributed to him definitely got embellished to suit the grievances of whoever was talking about them so at one point in his reign he'd been captured and held in prison and a rumor was recorded by a local bishop that during his time that he was incarcerated, he would capture rats in his cell and impale them on pieces of wood because he was, quote, unable to forget his wickedness. So like rat sickles, right? I don't know.
0: I'm here for rat ratsicles.
1: ratsicles.
0: I I'm telling you, this movie I am here for.
1: And then other crazy stories about his awfulness included an incident where some Turkish messengers came to pay their respects to him as they were passing through but their custom forbade them from removing their turbans when they bowed to him so vlad just straight up like fucking nailed their turbans to their heads with spikes to like prevent them from ever taking them off again so like you know a little histrionic our vlad you know
0: i'm just saying that people with a true lust for murder murder serial killers they did real well in the past
1: Oh yeah, nobody was going to stop them Mm -mm. at all.
0: Ted Bundy, he would have been very well respected and probably had his own country. He was very charming. He he had the lust for blood. Sure.
1: Didn't have the cool mustache though, like Vlad. Like you need that mustache.
0: I think he could have grown a cool mustache.
1: He probably had it in him. So then another situation that happened that really kind of cemented his legends was the invention of movable type and the printing press that allowed for mass publication of books. That happened right around this time. And horrible, gory stories of his cruelty suddenly became some of the first best selling books in Europe. Turns out pot boilers have been popular from the beginning. And they were illustrated too. Oh, yeah. Cute little woodcuts on the covers of Vlad just literally sitting there at his dinner table surrounded by a bunch of dead bodies on sticks.
0: Nice. That is the best way to have dinner.
1: Very, very classy. Right? I have to say, it it adds to the ambiance. I would bet that Crate and Barrel of that time had the Impaled Corpses collection that you could buy, like, just kind of put up while you're having your your meatloaf at night. Very, very nice. And, you know, why get a hanging fern when you can have a dude on a pike in the dining nook, right? You could
0: literally have a hanging fern!
1: Yeah, just get fern, cut her head off, boom, there Mm -hmm. you go. Yeah. And these illustrations are possibly even less lurid than the truly demented prose that was inside of these books. Eventually, it was just page after page after page of these grotesque descriptions of torture and murder and trauma, like stuff like people being boiled alive in their own tears inside giant cauldrons and, you know, all kinds of just deranged shit like that, which I'm not going to go into because, you know. And, And then here's the super weird part. He's, the dude's kind of become a national fucking hero in Romania.
0: He has.
1: Yeah, he has. So like around, in fact, weirdly enough, my dentist, who's actually a Polish guy, uh, so I don't know why I had this, but other than to be funny, had a big statue of of Vlad, of Vlad the Impaler, (laughs) Vlad Dracul, in the (laughs) waiting room of of the, uh, the dentist's office. And you wonder why I really hate going. So there you go. I need
0: to go to your dentist. I need your dentist. That is amazing.
1: And he had... um, He's retired now, unfortunately. But he also had these two gargoyles that were, like, smiling. Like, with big, like, bright, shiny teeth. Like, holding toothbrushes. Flanking the doors. Uh, there it's... Yeah. Now, I don't know if my dentist actually ever drank anyone's blood. I just think he he enjoyed the irony of the terror of dentistry, but yeah. But yeah, no, seriously, like Vlad the Impaler is a popular Romanian hero because around the 19th century, his image got a real spit polish by the local historians of his native land, and he became regarded as a model of courage and patriotism for like fighting the good and gory fight for the independence of Romania. I mean, sure, he killed a whole bunch of people in horrific ways for the sheer bloody joy of it, but you know... What's a few impalings among friends, right? Right. And there is a ton of apologia out there about how all these executions were necessary so he could cement power to the state. And I gotta say, it kind of feels like our current red cap crazies would have been 100% Team Vlad as well, right?
0: I would just like to go back for a second and say, look, it depends on how close your friendship is when it is a benefit to have an impaling going on
1: right? Yeah, just don't, don't be,
0: yeah.
1: I'm just kind of anti-impaling for the most part, but that's just me, you know? So all of that wretched history is to say that the actual real life Dracula had pretty much shit all to do with Bram Stoker's fictional Dracula, except for the cool ass name, which I will grant him is several thousand degrees of cooler than Varney the Vampire
0: varney varney says like one of my family lineages that's straight out of the south right there varney you get on in here with your brother sister and let's have dinner
1: varney quit turning into a bat and wash your hands yeah it's like that but actually the the original name of the book wasn't actually even dracula but it was rather the undead or in an earlier version the dead undead But they changed it to Dracula, which was cooler, for the final printing.
0: So he was just like, let me look around for some guy with a kick-ass title and a cool wardrobe. Bam.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe it was originally Brad the Vampire, and he was like, that's stupid.
0: And he was like, Varney's already taken.
1: Right? So who was the inspiration for the character of Dracula then? Well, we need to look much closer to home for Bram Stoker than medieval Wallachia.
0: Was it him? Did he drink blood?
1: No, no, there was no actual blood drinking that I know of. It was actually Stoker's boss and good friend, Sir Henry Irving, the famous actor and founder of the theater for whom Stoker worked.
0: Not an Irish guy.
1: Yeah, and that was who truly inspired the mannerisms and kind of behavior and general mood around the famous count, his kind of presence, Mm -hmm. if you will. And in fact, Stoker had hoped that Irving would play Dracula in a future stage adaptation of the novel, but that never came to pass because Irving was like, yeah, no, that's dumb.
0: You know, I could totally, totally see that, though. A commanding theater presence, like maybe stood up a little taller, held himself a little more erect, kind of had a sadistic side, maybe captivated people just by talking to them and could bend wills and yeah i could totally see it go
1: google henry irving and just have a look at him he very much has this very kind of angular patrician face so i you know i could definitely see it you know he's got these kind of heavy dark brooding eyes so yeah totally so stoker actually did adapt the novel two years after its publication into a theatrical format under the title dracula the undead and that play was performed only once at the lyceum and just basically to establish stoker's copyright for future stage adaptations and it was apparently terrible it was like four hours long it took 700 people it was just it was some bullshit
0: okay i looked up henry irving and holy shit
1: doesn't he have that, like, I am a brooding vampire guy. Ah,
0: ah, ah, I will charm you and suck your soul and your blood. and ah. Uh.
1: But alas, he never actually played the Count. He just inspired him.
0: He didn't have to play it. He lived it.
1: He lived it, man. He's
0: got this one picture that you know, it looks like some kind of uh, Catholic getup. But the hat, the hat really, and the... Cardinal hat kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, something. It's It's got four corners on it. But yeah, it it definitely, he you can tell all the way, he looks like Dracula. Ah, uh,
1: ah, uh, ah. Uh. Well, it was kind of a savvy move on Stoker's part for the future to do this whole getting the theatrical copyright happening because even though critics including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, just raved about this novel and said how great it was. And readers who did read it thought it was a really fun kind of tale of dark adventure. It wasn't really a bestseller and it didn't generate much income for Stoker. In fact, he was so poor by the last year of his life that he had to ask for a grant from the Royal Literary Fund just to cover the basic household costs of living. Aww. i know and stoker died after a series of strokes in april of 1912 his widow florence was forced to sell his notes and outlines for the novel at an auction at sotheby's in 1913 where they fetched the hardly princely sum of just two pounds
0: wow
1: yeah sad transylvanian trombone but the family fortunes were about to change a decade later thanks to a German film studio founded by occultists and terrible businessmen who decided to file off the serial numbers, so to speak, on the novel and present it as an original film script for a little picture called Nosferatu.
0: Which we have discussed in, yeah. yeah, previous episodes.
1: So I know I've bashed your ears already about this film in another episode that we did. I, I believe so, yes. But let me just give you a quick and dirty rundown on the scandal that went down around the rights to this film. So Prana Film Studios put this silent German Expressionist masterpiece out in 1922. And it is an absolute gem of a film and is almost universally regarded as a classic of the horror genre. But almost all of the copies of the initial run of the film were destroyed in the year following its premiere because, oopsie, nobody in the studio bothered to get clearances on the film rights from Bram Stoker's estate and his widow, Florence, sued the ever-loving shit out of them. She sued the hosen off those Germans. And it's essentially the exact plot of Dracula, except the setting was changed to 1830s Germany. And instead of calling him Count Dracula, the bloodsucker is renamed Count Orlock. And because it was kind of the Wild West early days of cinema, nobody at the studio figured there'd be a problem with this. Spoiler alert, there was a problem. So Florence Stoker basically came at these guys hot and heavy with her lawyers. She threw the book at them and she won, ordering damages to be paid to her and all copies of the film to be destroyed. Well, ha ha, Florence, the joke is on you because Prana Films was bankrupt by that point, and so all she got remunerated were her legal fees, because, you know, lawyers always make sure they get paid. And one copy of the film did indeed survive the funeral pyre, and it got passed around the world from cineast to cineast and new copies were made of the print, and it generally grew in kind of infamy and popularity as one of the earliest examples of a cult film. And ironically, this is what actually made the novel suddenly popular again. And a newer, and by all accounts better, version of the stage play of Dracula was written with permission from the estate in 1924, by playwright and actor Hamilton Dean, who'd also been a member of Henry Irving's theater company. And he knew Florence and he had known Bram Stoker. And it was a hit with UK audiences. And eventually it moved across the pond in 1927, where a then unknown Hungarian actor named Bela Lugosi took up the cape as the count. And it was a smash hit in the States and Universal Pictures Acquired the film rights to it and made it into a film in 1931, in which Lugosi reprised his role as Dracula. And though the American producer of the play did buy the rights for Hamilton Dean's version of the story, he failed to actually pay Florence, sad trombone again, what she was owed for the show, and he died before the matter was actually settled.
0: That's Jack. Yeah. She just keeps on getting screwed.
1: She does. And in fact, it's worse than that bram stoker failed to properly register his copyright of the novel no. when it was published in the united states and so universal studios <sighs> discovered that the book was actually technically in the public domain in the u.s
0: oh no blah, blah,
1: blah. yeah
0: so, so all of the u.s movies that have been based off of dracula tv shows stories blah 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 are you telling me that the the hype of Dracula is due to it being in the public domain?
1: I think that's part of it. Now, Universal is really, don't touch me, about its universal monsters. Like, they will come for you. The actual images of their versions of them, they are very, like, protective of. But things like Frankenstein, werewolves, Dracula, at this point, totally all public domain. So you can just Draculate your eyeballs off if you want. Hmm. Yeah, weird. But... So the Todd Browning-directed, Carl Lemley produced film of Dracula was apparently kind of a shit show behind the scenes. Like, it was chaos. But the actual movie that resulted turned out to be a huge hit when it premiered in 1931. And producer Carl Lemley didn't initially want its star, Bella Lugosi, to reprise his stage role and he auditioned a number of other actors for the part. But Lugosi really just campaigned so hard for this part and agreed to a paltry $500 a week salary that eventually added up to only $3,500 for the entire film, or about sixty grand in today's money, if the internet is correct. Wow. Yeah. So Lugosi's success as the Count came with the price to him. Despite him declaring that he would not be taking future horror roles, especially as vampires, because he didn't want to be typecast, it was way too late. That powerful presence as the Count, coupled with his strong Hungarian accent and slightly strange demeanor, pretty much doomed him to becoming second banana to one of Universal's other big horror stars, Boris Karloff, and they made a string of pictures together for the next decade or so.
0: Yeah, I mean, even today, we still associate them together, those two characters,
1: Karloff and Lugosi. Mm -hmm. Karloff was not, you know, it sounds like, oh, Boris Karloff, he must be Eastern European. No, he was not. He was English, I believe. Hmm. Right. So, yeah. So often, Lugosi had a wee bit part, but it was kind of enough that they would get his name on the marquee, which is what the studio wanted. And it left him pretty frustrated. And in his later years, he took a lot of -of bottom-of-the-barrel B-picture roles, including working with legendary low-budget schlock auteur, Ed Wood. Ah! God bless him. And Ed Wood shot some footage of Lugosi in his Dracula costume for a different film that he was planning that never actually came together, but then he spliced that footage into his infamous turkey, Plan 9 from Outer Space, after Lugosi had died. So that's why you have, like, weird random vampire with aliens, and yeah, it's that movie if you have not seen plan nine from outer space uh, enjoy the edible thing of your choice and check that sucker out because fuck, fuck, fuck even happening?
0: that is so true though oh, you God. you need either some kind of drug psychedelic or a lot of alcohol on board to sit through that one
1: it is it's it's a it's something it is something and here's another sort of interesting gothy moment Lugosi was actually buried in one of his satin capes from the Dracula set so that even in real death he was unable to escape the counts
0: is that canon because I I didn't know if that was canon or not
1: no it it actually is and he did not request that people say oh he asked to be buried apparently his wife and son decided to bury him in it because they thought he would want that but he did not like write it down as a codicil of his will or anything they just thought you know what i bet he'd like that
0: but woody
1: <laughs> right Ugh. poor bella lugosi he's dead undead undead sorry i had a Bauhaus moment but I'm better now oh and here's another super weird bella lugosi tangent that collects connects to something we talked about earlier this year on the podcast so the main protagonist of the furry anime beast stars that uh so upsettingly captivated me back in march he's his main character is Lagoshi in honor of bella Legoshi because oh. japan right
0: oh i love that yeah, so Legoshi- by the way just so you know there is a a line you said when we were talking about that on the cast where it, you said and i was watching it and not hating it <laughs> It has become a tagline around my house. Not hating, Not it. hating it. Not yeah. hating it.
1: I'm, I'm going to watch second season if it comes out, because uh, apparently I'm a furry. Hell yes. I'm a furry. Not really, but maybe. I don't know. You, you know, it's strange times. 2020 makes for strange bedfellows.
0: Hey, you know what? You're an adult. Yeah. You can consent to whatever you want oh, to, and as long as Will is consenting to wear that mask...
1: No, no, we just, I, like, I leave it all on the screen, I leave it all on the Netflix, thanks. <laughs> so, Lugosi wasn't the only actor to become synonymous with the role of Dracula on screen, however. In the UK, Hammer Film Productions got into the horror act in the 1950s and found great success with their 1958 version of Stoker's story, starring Sir Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing.
0: The great Christopher Lee. Ugh.
1: Oh my god. So where Lugosi had been kind of slow and strange and mesmerizing in his manners as the Count, Lee went for kind of sexy and sinewy when it came to his Dracula. In fact, Lee was fairly critical of Lugosi's portrayal, saying that his Dracula is far too nice at the beginning of the story, and he had little menace, and that there was no fright or shock to the performance. Sir Christopher Lee would know a little something about Fright and Shock himself since prior to becoming an actor...
0: He was a vampire.
1: Well, and even cooler than that, he hunted actual goddamn Nazis as an intelligence officer in the RAF.
0: Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did.
1: You know, this entire episode was just an excuse for me to talk about Christopher Lee, right? Do we
0: need an excuse? We could do an entire story about Christopher Lee. Christopher
1: Lee. Christopher he Lee. He
0: hunted fucking Nazis. He was a Nazi hunter.
1: I know. Christopher
0: Lee. He also was a voice in death metal. Like he loved death yes. metal. I love him. Love him. Mwah.
1: We're gonna talk all about Christopher Lee, because this is my this is my time to tangent onto Christopher Lee. Okay, so this is how much I love Christopher Lee. Our goldfish are named Dracula, Lord Summer Isle, and the Duke de Richelieu, because you know. Christopher Lee roles. Our fourth goldfish is Ghostfish, Way of the Samurai, because I also <laughs> love Jim Jarmusch, but we won't talk about that today. So back to Christopher Lee. Seriously, this guy was a fucking legend. He was born to a family that can trace its lineage back to Charlemagne. He was in the Royal Air Force Intelligence Service because an issue with his optic nerve prevented him from becoming a pilot. And he was nearly killed multiple times during World War II. And at the end of the war, his fluency in French, Italian, German, and a few other languages got him a posting with the Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects. And he—that that is when he became a by-God-fucking-actual Nazi hunter. Bless his heart. And though he has never spoken in detail of his time in the service due to an oath of secrecy, there is an absolutely insane and delightful story that director Peter Jackson recalls from his time with Christopher Lee on the set of Lord of the Rings. So Peter Jackson was blocking the scene in Return of the King, where Brad Dourif, in the role of slimy henchman Grima Wormtongue, is going to stab Christopher Lee's character, the villainous wizard Saruman, in the back. And Jackson's describing how he wants Lee to play it and what it's going to look like and what it's going to sound like. And Lee stops him and says, have you any idea what kind of noise happens when someone is stabbed in the back? Because I do. (laughs) I mean, damn. So yeah, and I'm not like a you should stab people, but I am a you should stab Nazis.
0: It depends on the day. I might be a you should stab people and it really depends on the people. Nazis 1000%. One,
1: yeah. Punch a Nazi, kick a Nazi, just fuck the Nazis. Yeah. I'm I'm unlike our president. I'm just going to come up and absolutely trash talk and disavow White supremacists, Nazis, etc. Proud Boys, fuck those guys, fuck them. So after the war, Lee returned to London, and he was none too keen to return to the boring world of office work after his adventures in the war. Right? Adventures
0: in Nazi hunting.
1: Right. I mean, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris, kind of thing, right? And a friend of his suggested that he try his hand at acting, and initially he was pretty much relegated to work as a background player for the first decade of his career. His impressive six-foot, three-inch height really kind of held him back a bit, and he was also told that he was getting a bit long in the tooth to be starting an acting career at the age of 30 or so.
0: Oh, fuck people.
1: Right? Well, you know, he showed them. So he worked steadily, though, through the 1950s, often playing kind of stock action characters, and then in 1957, Hammer Films came calling. And his first film with them was *The Curse of Frankenstein*, with his frequent on-screen partner Peter Cushing playing the role of Baron Victor Frankenstein, and Lee played the monster. And his imposing stature and kind of you know heavy gl- like glowering brows really served him well in that part. And Hammer really liked the cut of his jib as well as the chemistry between him and Cushing. And the following year, they teamed them back up again in Dracula, which is also known as the horror of Dracula in the United States. And Lee was this time the Count, and Cushing was his nemesis, Van Helsing. And audiences just went wild for Lee's dark, brooding, sexy Count as he noshed his way through a bevy of buxom beauties. It's
0: not your mother's Count.
1: Exactly. And there is this great, hilarious quote that I found online from a journalist named Tim Stanley about Lee's take on the role. He said, Lee's sensuality was subversive in that it hinted that women might quite like having their neck chewed on by a stud.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want their neck chewed on by a stud? Right?
1: I'm like, oh, a stud. Mm. So, Lee went on to play Dracula ten times, seven of them with Hammer Films.
0: Ten? I didn't realize he played Dracula ten times. Ten times?
1: fucking times, yeah. he And he, you know, he really was like, I wasn't that into it, but they kept basically emotionally blackmailing me into coming <laughs> back because they're like, we need you! So yeah, seven fucking times alone with just Hammer films. And he also played a wide assortment of other characters and roles in the Hammer horror and thriller movies, including taking the role of Rasputin and as multiple characters in their Sherlock Holmes pictures, including one turn as the consulting detective himself. Although my favorite hammer horror film with Christopher Lee is actually The Devil Rides Out, which is based on the popular occult novel by Dennis Wheatley, in which Lee plays the Duke de Richelieu, who has to thwart a cult of devil worshippers and their nefarious plans. And it is fabulous and super 60s, and it's great. But my other favorite role, which is not a hammer film, for sir christopher lee was in the wicker man in 1973 classic that is one of my fucking favorite films and no no it is absolutely not the nick cage version which as far as i am concerned exists on a timeline that is even more fuckity than this one i deny i deny i deny it doesn't exist
0: i keep on trying to say that about nick cage period but you
1: know oh god the llamas! Uh, but we're I mean, we're talking the Edward Woodward as Policeman Prude versus Island of the Kinky Pagan Britons. It, it, it is a wall-smacking, cop-burning, maypole-winding, good fucking time, and I am 100% here for it. I mean, frankly, vis-a-vis The Wicker Man, I personally choose to believe, in my mind, that it was actually just a bunch of Christopher Lee's home movies they kind of spliced together. I mean, it's great. <laughs> you should just watch it. If you have not seen it, Go out, watch it immediately. Check it out. Not Nick Cage, only, only Christopher Lee. That's what you want.
0: Yeah, seriously, stay away from Nick Cage. It's a trap.
1: Oh, it's don't do it. But yeah, Lee went on to do a lot of other roles in a lot of non-horror films, and he found a whole new generation of fans thanks to his involvement with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, wherein he played the White Wizard Saruman, who turned out to be quite the villain in the end. I hope I'm not spoiling that for any of you.
0: If you are a lover of the books, The Wizard of Many Colors.
1: Yes. The White Wizard walks here. Yeah, sorry, I'm going to go, hoom, hoom. I'm sorry, I had a Tree Beard moment. It's, I'm fine now. But he also played the voice role of King Haggard in the animated movie The Last Unicorn. Yeah, he did. Yes, yes he did. The Unicorn. Oh, my God. And he was a regular in Tim Burton's movies. He did five of them with him. And you would think with all of this acting like way into his golden years, he would have no time for other artistic pursuits. But there you would be wrong because he is a Renaissance man. He was fluent in English, Italian, French, German and Spanish. And he could muddle along pretty okay in Swedish, Russian and Greek. He had reread the Lord of the Rings trilogy about once a year.
0: Didn't he know Tolkien?
1: Oh, yeah. He was a super fan, so it was perfect that he was cast as Saruman. And he totally dug heavy metal music. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. So using his deep, rich, sonorous voice, which was pretty much made for the genre, he sung with the Italian power metal band Rhapsody of Fire, and even worked with Manowar on an album. He then went on to record his own personal metal album, Charlemagne, by The Sword and Cross, and he even released an EP of heavy metal covers of Christmas songs called A Heavy Metal Christmas. Rump-a-pum-pum, indeed.
0: I'm not gonna lie, I absolutely love Rhapsody of Fire. I hate,
1: these are, I'm not even, I'm not making fun, like, I genuinely like... This music, like he's great at this. He is.
0: He's amazing.
1: Yeah. You know, mock Christopher Lee at your peril is all I'm saying. Yeah. Super great. He lived an incredibly long, rich life and he passed away on June 7th, 2015, shortly after celebrating his 93rd birthday. Or was it all an act and he really is Count Dracula? And he's out there somewhere prowling the forests of Wallachia, luring his victims closer with his sonorous metal renditions of good King Wenceslas. Maybe.
0: Can it be that? Because I'm all about a sexy vampire tune on my neck, much like other ladies.
1: Yes. Yeah, of course. Did you
0: so, really just say yes? Over that? Uh, yes. Yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to wrap this tale of Dracula up by recounting some of the absolute batshit insane titles of films that sought to capitalize on the fame of the Count's name, because I had a hell of a giggle reading them while I was doing research for this story. So just the Hammer films alone are real gems. So these are all the Hammer Draculas. Dracula, the Brides of Dracula, because clearly he's maybe a Mormon, he's got brides. Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Taste the blood of Dracula, scars of Dracula. Dracula gives up blood, moves <laughs> to Brighton, and becomes an actuary. Wait, what?
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I made that one up, but I didn't make these up. Dracula A.D., The Satanic Rites of Dracula, and my favorite, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which is a martial arts film set in China that was a joint production with the legendary shaw brothers oh wow and it it does not star christopher lee or bruce lee for that matter but it does have peter cushing he needed work yeah and so then outside of the hammer universe there is billy the kid versus dracula in which the name dracula is never mentioned in the actual film it's just in the title what (laughs) yeah I don't make it up. I just report the news. And then, of course, there's Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream, because why not get that black exploitation vampire crossover thing going? It's the 70s. I mean, Blacks
0: are being exploited in every other way. Why not with sure. vampires? Sure. Sure.
1: Okay, Blackula is, is it good? I have seen Blackula. I've not seen Scream, Blackula, Scream. So that might be actually good. I will say it's an interesting historical document, and it's better than you think it might be. So check it out. And then, this is my favorite, which I've never seen, but I would like to. Dracula's Dog. Yes, Dracula's Dog, in which Drac takes second billing to Zoltan, the blood-sucking Doberman Pinscher.
0: Oh my god.
1: It's a real movie. I don't make this shit up. And then for you, there is also Batman Fights Dracula. (laughs) Yes, there is! Uh, but I'm going to break your heart. It's a lost film. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, it was a Filipino film that was made in 1967. And it was a parody of like the superhero and horror film genre.
0: There have been so many lost Batman movies. I
1: know. I'm so
0: upset. Sorry.
1: He's elusive, the Bat. He is. Yeah. And then our pal Andy Warhol friend of the show, Andy Warhol, haha, got in on the blood suckin' with his super campy, hella gay version of Dracula that starred Udo Kier as the Count. I also love Udo Kier. I will not get started on the road of Udo Kier because we'll be here a while, but Udo Kier, those big, crazy, googly Euro eyes, Udo Kier, num, num, num. Anyway, and I got to throw a really solid retelling of the story in a very meta way out there and actually and recommend, which I think I've done before, Shadow of the Vampire, which is a film that follows the production of Nosferatu, but imagines if Max Schreck, who played Count Orlok, was actually a real vampire who starts basically eating the cast and crew to the great annoyance of the director.
0: It's a pretty good movie.
1: It is. Yeah, it's enjoyable. And so over the years since its release, Dracula has inspired hundreds of movies, plays, musicals, ballets, radio plays, TV shows, books, poems, paintings, video games, comic books, anime, and merchandise of all sorts, including a chocolatey breakfast cereal. Shout out to Count Chocula. Although I personally was more of a booberry fan myself. And
0: an amazing puppet.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed. The, the count ah, ah he's he's taught children to count i mean who the hell do you think that like bram stoker could have imagined all of this when he no. wrote it probably not and i'm kind of sad that he never really got to experience this joy in his lifetime either i will say in conclusion that the novel is genuinely very gripping very entertaining even by today's standards and i definitely recommend snuggling up with the count this month as your reading material because he it's at least in enjoyably Fictional scary thing to 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 read right now, instead of the real scary that is most of our current reality. Agreed. And that, my friends, is you don't know Drac.
0: I love it. I love it. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for that one.
1: Oh man, I tried. I tried. I was like Dracula. It's it's October. Got to get on the Dracula train. So I did. That's right.
0: Next month is Yummy Mummy November. You guys be prepared for Yummy Mummy November. If anyone. Has any mummy related stories that they would like to send us, please do
1: send us your mummies. I
0: always appreciate an email recommending that we research something, which we get from time to time. So, thank you all for that. Yes, yeah, send us all your mummies. Show me your mummies. Can I
1: just do an episode that's just called I Really Like Brendan Fraser? I really like Brendan Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> I like Brennan Fraser, which will turn into Canadian's I Fancy. Now, I, I do want to do one day the Canadian's I Fancy episode, but yes. But but you, I want to hear about, so you moved. You moved.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, I moved. To a new
1: place. Uh, and I understand that you have an exciting piece of decor in your downstairs window.
0: I do. So I actually have two strange and exciting things about this house. One was here when I got here. And I have ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, disturbed all around. It's official. I have a panic room.
1: (laughs) And you know what? You might need it. This is the year for it. This is the year for a
0: panic room.
1: Excellent. You've got it.
0: Yes. So I am prepared with panic room lifestyle now. I'm very excited about this. I have been waiting. So there's that, which is just lovely in itself. But then, let me tell you, and and mind you, should I be found by this description, I will immediately take it down. But let me tell you, on Amazon, there are several shower curtains that are Jeff Goldblum. And they are amazing pictures of Jeff Goldblum. And there's one that I found where it's just a close-up of his face, and he seems to be saying, shh, shh.
1: Shushed by a Goldblum.
0: Shush! You don't know what secrets lie behind the Jeff Goldblum, but you may want to know the secrets that lie behind the Jeff Goldblum. I know who
1: doesn't. It's Will, has- <laughs> Will. Jeff Goldblum knows what Jeff Goldblum did. Will has like an omerta against Jeff Goldblum. Hates him. Hates him. I don't know if he hates him as much more or the same amount as Ira Glass, but both of those fuckers know what they did.
0: Okay. Well. He does not have to interact with Jeff's Secrets. I will interact with Jeff's Secrets. So what I did is I got this shower curtain months ago, months ago in preparation for moving because all I could imagine, which is the funniest goddamn thing in the world to me. Once we open back up again and people can come back into my life, somebody walking into my guest bathroom to shh, just Jeff, shh, giant Jeff Goldblum. I I, I lived to see these faces. But then we moved into this house. And one of my roommates, because we moved in with Lacey Nishnum and her spouse, our, our two closest friends, one of my roommates pointed out, hey, we have a window that needs a cover in a giant, giant window that needs a cover in. And what is the best answer to this possible?"
1: It's Jeff Goldblum. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What if you become a Pokestop for Pokemon <laughs> Go because of this? we we're got to, like, suggest you to Niantic.
0: We are the house of Jeff. No, no one would ever find us. It's very difficult to get to this house. Ask Amazon. But we are the house of Jeff. So one of the best things about this is it is near a hiking trail that people go past. And I have watched people stop as they crest a hill and just point towards our house because the tree line is perfect enough that all you see is Jeff Goldblum's <laughs> nose and eyes poking out above the tree line with this shh.
1: <laughs> He's watching you. Goldblum is always watching. I
0: feel safe. I feel so wow. safe. I have a panic room and Jeff Goldblum watching out for me.
1: Damn. That's that's very exciting.
0: <laughs> and I will sit here and think about it and laugh. And I was if I think about it too hard, I start laughing until I cry. Like literally break down crying, laughing, because I think about, oh, then there was the Amazon driver that almost drove into the blackberry bushes looking at <laughs>
1: Now all you need are some bodies on pikes for the dining room, which really pull a room together, and the house will be complete.
0: And the hanging fern,
1: and the, hang- the hanging head of fern. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, that's where I'm at right now. I live in a house with Jeff Goldblum watching after me in a panic room. I'm I am here for this.
1: Jeff Goldblum keeps me safe. Shh. <laughs> wow. That's almost as good as the what, the 12-foot-high the, the Home Depot skeleton. That's what you need next.
0: <laughs> you are not the first person to tell me this. Oh,
1: my God. I need that for my house. What I, well, the, the thing I've always wanted was the life-size like, demon terror dog thing from Ghostbusters. With nice. the light-up eye, eyes that growls. Yeah, I need that. But, you know, if I had that extra $500, probably would not put it into that. But maybe, maybe.
0: Oh, by the way, anyone who does go to our website, disturbinginterest.com, uh, don't do it from your phone because oh, no. it's not having good interaction times with phones. So, oh, I will have to look yeah. at
1: that. I mean, I guess, because I don't know what I would do to fix it, because I'm like, oh, oh, I can unplug it. I don't think you can do that. I can unplug it or shake it. That's all I know how to do.
0: I like that you said I have to poke at that, and I immediately thought, yes, yes, I do.
1: <laughs> give it a poke, give it a digital poke. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to work that. Yeah, I don't know how to fix websites. I'm sorry.
0: It's okay. I will mess with it once I have time and energy, which will not be any time right now.
1: Oh, I heard a great, a great joke where I was like, "I feel seen," which was, um, "I'm Gen X." So, like a millennial, I can adapt to new technology, but like a boomer, I'm mad about it.
0: (laughs) That's good. All right. Well, on that note, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, you might be alone. (laughs) You're alone. You're
1: alone.
0: We're all alone. You
1: might be Jeff Goldblum, but you're not Christopher Lee.
0: (laughs) You might be disturbed.
1: But you're not Sir Christopher
0: Lee. And you're not a giant Jeff Goldblum. No, or alone. Thank you for listening, friends. Remember, if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook at the Disturbing Interest Podcast, Twitter at podcast underscore DI, instagram at podcast. you can find us online at disturbinginterest.com or you can email us at disturbinginterest at gmail.com our p.o box is 70515 seattle washington 98127 remember to rate like and tell your friends and we'll talk at you soon